0: this morning and let's go to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 this morning, we are taking a three-week break from our series in First Peter to focus on this season, this time of year. This morning we'll be in Psalm 118 and seeing its connection to Palm Sunday. Next week we're actually going to look at John 20 and see Jesus, the resurrected Christ, his interaction with a defeated and having failed having denied Jesus Christ, restoring Peter. And then in two weeks, we'll have a guest speaker. He's done some study on the resurrection from an apologetic standpoint. Um, He'll be focusing then specifically on the resurrections. That's coming in two weeks. We'll be in this text in just a few moments. Have you ever considered the contrasting emotions that were present on that first Palm Sunday? Think about the contrast. The crowds were jubilant. They're thrilled to welcome Jesus into the city. This is that man that's been doing all these miracles, gaining all this attention, showing all this power, and they have an expectation for him. And yet, when Jesus approached, he expresses a tearful lament. The contrast is between Jesus and the Israelites. Let's hear this part of that story from Luke 19. We read, And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, his followers, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They knew what these disciples were saying as they're quoting Psalm 118. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you Even you, and that's the people of that city, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus knew that they would reject him as their king. And in doing so, they would not receive the peace that he longed to bring to them. This morning, how are you receiving King Jesus? Are you willing to praise and worship him if? He comes to you on your terms. Just as the people do here as they praise him as the king. Or will you submit to him as your king no matter the cost of following him? We can certainly feel some of the deep irony and tragedy of the crowd's words as we know the rest of this story. Their shouts of praise will turn to cries for his murder certainly the crowds at some point overlap their anger at disappointment at what he's come for is seen as they cry for him to die it's easy for us to see their blindness blindness but we should not expect that we would have been any different apart from God's intervening grace in our own hearts we would have responded the same way As one author notes, we'd hear our praise, hollow as it were, and then by Friday, ashamed, we'd hear our mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And yet, even that is part of the good news. You see, it's not the righteous after all that Jesus came to save, but sinners, sinners like us, sinners that want Jesus to act according to our priorities, He's willing to save even us. The people that day were quoting verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. And that psalm is our text this morning. Now, before we read it, there's 29 verses. I want to put some things in your mind that you should be looking for and listening for as we read. First, look for the many instances of repetition. That's especially strong in this psalm as it's a psalm of triumph, celebrating holidays. It's a festival procession. For instance, the name Jehovah is used directly 28 times in 29 verses. It's clear that the psalmist is saying God is the one we're celebrating for his deliverance. God then as the Almighty One is used another three times At the end of the psalm, and this isn't even to list all the times he's referred to by pronoun reference. Also, thankfulness is referred to five times in these verses and provide for us the primary application of the passage. Notice the beginning and ending of the psalm, they're the exact same verse with a command given. Second, as we read, The psalm, picture how the psalm is progressing. That will help you understand and picture what's happening. This is, in a way, a very confusing psalm. There's many different speakers, it seems. But notice the progress that's being made forward. Uh, There's forward motion, rather, as the congregation of triumphant Israelites. They're accompanying a leader of some kind. It might be one of their kings. It might be a priest. As they move into the city of Jerusalem, all the way into the temple to offer sacrifices at the altar. Third, Peter quotes this psalm more than once in the New Testament. In fact, this psalm is quoted 14 times in the New Testament, and some scholars say its themes are referenced anywhere from 20 to 60 times. This psalm is used the most of all the psalms, except perhaps Psalm 110 in the New Testament. So as we read, see if you can understand why this psalm was special to Peter. Why it was on his mind and as it focuses again on what we've been learning there in his letter. And then finally, this is the main thing we'll consider this morning. Consider how Jesus would have read and prayed and sung these words. Again, this psalm was used during festival occasions in the life of the Jews. Very specifically, Psalm 113 through 118 were the last songs sung together at the close of the Passover meal. This psalm is the final song among all of those. These are the final words that Jesus would sing with his disciples before they departed for the Garden of Gethsemane. These words ring in his ears. These truths he's meditating on in his last hours. With those things in mind, let's read together Psalm 118. This is the word of God to his people. Verse 1, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord Jehovah answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations Surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. This is on the edge of death, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day, the day of salvation that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, the mighty one. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together as we ask for his help to understand this passage. Father, we come before you with humility, recognizing that these are your words. They're words from a time that has gone by. The context has been lost to us. We don't know the author. We don't know the setting. And yet these truths are truths that christians for centuries have rejoiced in that in god we are triumphant because his love for us endures forever lord may your words encourage and strengthen us this morning may we know this god who is our god in jesus name amen as i mentioned psalms 113 through 118 are a small collection within the psalter that Jewish families would use as they celebrated the Passover. This smaller collection of the Psalms is called the Egyptian Hallel, or the Egyptian Praise Songs. And that's for a reason. They celebrate and rehearse what God had done for His people in bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They quote a portion of the Song of Moses as they praise God for that deliverance through the Exodus, through the Red Sea. Now, we don't know when this psalm was written, and we don't know by whom. But it is likely it was written by a Davidic king, someone who came after David, or by one of the priests who'd returned to Jerusalem around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah as God restored them from the exile. But no matter when it was written, it encourages the people of God by calling them to praise him for his great salvation. It encourages us this morning by revealing an even greater deliverance through David's greater son. Now, this morning, we're not going to work through all 29 verses as we typically do. Instead, we'll consider how this psalm's theme helps us understand the significance of the week that we're about to celebrate as we approach the days commemorating Christ's death and resurrection. Now as we read and seek to understand the Psalms in general, as we come to one specifically like this, we should keep in mind that they hold meaning both for the first audience and we want to understand that. But there's an even fuller meaning for us through a gospel lens. Jesus taught his disciples to understand his word this way. When in Luke 24, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Pentateuch and the prophets, that's all the writings and the history and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He says, everything written about me in all of the sections of the Old Testament. We're told by Jesus there to expect to see him and find him and where to look for him in the Old Testament. One scholar I read this week said that we should read the Psalms as the prayers of Jesus. And I want you to see some of those connections as we work through this psalm this morning. Know that this Old Testament book was often on the lips of our Lord. First, this psalm calls us to thank God for his never love that's the main idea that we see in this psalm if we would encapsulate it this psalm teaches us about God's persistent and faithful love for us it begins oh give thanks to the Lord and then it tells us why why should we give thanks to the Lord because he is good how do we know he's good because his steadfast love endures it endures forever we notice in these first four verses how this, this praise begins and then it begins to expand outward like the ripple of a pond. The psalmist exhorts all of Israel to say, to declare out loud, to let others know and hear that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. Then he calls on a specific group of Israel, the priests, the house of Aaron, to say his steadfast love endures forever. And then finally he includes everyone those who fear the Lord, those who believe that he is God, to join in this chorus. But how are we to understand this steadfast love of the Lord? In a way, it's so familiar to us, we can rush right over it. We hear this phrase a lot in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. But if we understand the Hebrew word behind it, it's almost an untranslatable word. Not because the language barrier is so different, but because of how deep and rich and expansive this word is. Modern translators struggle with how to communicate all that it means. Is it God's covenant love? Is it loyal love? Is it steadfast love? How do we say and understand all that encompasses the faithful love of God? I like how one pastor described it as the love that will not let me go. The psalmist here is celebrating the truth that God remains faithful and immovable in his love for us. In spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our failings, in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of our self-centeredness, in spite of our, at times, godlessness, when we act like he doesn't even exist or matter in our lives. Just think of the many ways that God has demonstrated his faithful commitment to Israel throughout her history, even when she failed him. God gives incredible promises to Abraham there at the beginning, and he proves himself faithful to him again and again and again, even when it seems to Abraham that God won't fulfill his promises. He keeps giving Abraham that promise again and again and sustaining him. But is Abraham faithful in his dependence and love on God? for God in return? No. He loses sight of God's promises more than once. He seeks to go his own way. As we read through Israel's history, Isaac does some of the exact same things, even though God is with him. Jacob, the same thing. We come to God's king, David, the man after God's own choosing. He loved God greatly. He did many great things by God's strength through faith. But was David steadfast in his love toward God? No. And yet God in his loving kindness, in his covenant love, his persistent love would not let David go. Have you ever wondered why the Bible includes so many of the failures of God's people? the best of men and women in the Bible are still in desperate need of God's commitment to them. The Bible records their failures in order to highlight his faithfulness and urges to trust him. One British Old Testament scholar from a generation ago wrote this of the meaning of this kind of love. God's loving kindness is that sure love which will not let Israel go, not even Israel's persistent waywardness could destroy his love. Though Israel would be faithless, yet God remained faithful still. This steady, persistent refusal of God to wash his hands of wayward Israel is the essential meaning of the Hebrew word, which is translated loving kindness. C.S. Lewis captures our condition of need well when he wrote in his book, The Four Loves, our growing awareness that our whole being by its very nature is one vast need. Incomplete, preparatory, empty, yet cluttered. Crying out for him who can untie things that are now knotted together. And tie up things that are still dangling loose in our lives. Do you sense your need this morning of a God who is steadfast toward you in spite of your repeated failures to be faithful to him. You feel the desperation of the psalmist as he calls for God's people to recognize all that they have in the faithfulness of our covenant-keeping God. You don't deserve this. You cannot earn this relationship. This is revealing the nature of who our God is. He's persistent. He's dogged in his pursuit of unfaithful people. And that love is what's supposed to motivate us to love him in response. This phrase, bookends the psalm, it reminds us to praise him, to thank him, because he is faithful to us even when we're unfaithful to him. Secondly, consider how Jesus understood this psalm after their celebration of the Passover supper together in Mark fourteen twenty six we read and when they had sung a hymn they went out to the Mount of Olives this is very likely that hymn that Jesus sang with his disciples before he went to the cross for you and me This is just before he entered the garden of Gethsemane. So consider the depths of these truths as Jesus is about to pour out his soul to God. As you know, this psalm contains the words that the jubilant crowds shouted to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. They shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These words are quoted from verses 25 and 26. Do you know what Hosanna means? It means what we read in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. At first it started out in the Old Testament as a cry for deliverance. But then it was save us, King. Long live the King who saves us. They want a Messiah who will deliver them from political oppression. A Messiah who would deliver them from Rome. So save us, King. Do we ever view God like they did? Do we ever expect him to work in our lives according to our priorities and plans? Do we ever get upset and angry and discouraged with him when he doesn't act according to our purposes or according to our timetable or in a way that we can immediately understand? Do we ever act like these people and say, God, I'm all for you if you do what I want you to do? We struggle to believe God can be good when he doesn't act our way or in our timing, or he doesn't explain himself. We doubt even that he loves us when we go through deep waters. Can you see any parallel between this psalm and how Peter intends for us to view God through our hardships and sufferings? Remember, the first chapter of 1 Peter encourages us to respond to suffering in an unusual way. When somebody's suffering, we've made the point that, again, our first thought isn't to tell them, remember the gospel. But Peter says that's what we need to hear. Peter begins by rejoicing in God because of his great mercy. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. I kind of hear an echo to this psalm, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Though the crowds on Palm Sunday praise Jesus as the king that they were waiting for, that they were longing for, they very soon would mock him. In Matthew twenty-seven forty-two, they cry, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, then let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. The one who had been hailed as blessed of God who'd come to save would be reviled as one who could not save himself. And Peter will write when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. You've been healed by his wounds. Why was it that he did not revile in return? Because Jesus, the king of kings, was willingly suffering to demonstrate that persistent, unfailing, steadfast love of God towards sinners. It's not that the king of the Jews could not save himself. The beauty of the gospel unwittingly that they're testifying to is that he would not in order that he might rightly offer salvation he would not escape his suffering because he was acting for you and me so that we could truly receive his steadfast love a love not conditioned by our faithfulness or righteousness so that God could declare himself just and the justifier of those who come to him third we're to praise God for how these truths strengthen Jesus, even on the way to the cross. I want you to see this as we work through a few verses of this psalm. Look back again at verses 5 through 7. Just consider how Jesus would have clung to these truths that the psalmist is rehearsing for the people of God. And certainly we're not saying that we can apply every phrase to what Jesus was facing. But I believe we can rightly conclude that these truths would have been an encouragement to him in his final hours. Listen to how verse 5 is fulfilled even more fully in Jesus' anguish. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. That wasn't immediately, but he was set free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Would that have rung true in Jesus' mind? Jesus told his disciples on three separate occasions what awaited him in Jerusalem, and they didn't understand. In Luke 18, 31 and following, we read, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And consider now again verses 10 through 12, where Jesus says, All the nations surrounded me. They surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like bees. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And it says, all of these oppressors were cut off in spite of Jesus being surrounded. Hebrew poetry often evokes word pictures to help us feel what the psalmist is feeling. Several years ago in the spring, as our family was hiking in DuPont State Forest, we were headed to see one of the waterfalls along that hike. And without realizing it, we came across the path of some kind of hornet. They were big. I don't think they were bees. They had to be a hornet of some kind. And both me and one of my sons were stung. And it was, it was a worse sting than I've ever experienced before. It was pretty dramatic. Uh, we did not forget that. We keep that in mind every time we go hiking. Up in that park again, we're always on the lookout for those hornets. Have you ever been chased by bees? Maybe you're mowing in your yard and you mow across the hole of some yellow jackets, a yellow jacket nest, and they keep coming after you. Maybe you haven't been chased yourself, but you can picture it in your mind. Maybe you've seen those cartoons where they're running from the bees and the only hope is to jump in the water, right? The bees won't go there. The idea here is that it produces fear and desperation because their pursuit of their target is relentless. It causes you to kind of panic. You feel like there's no way to get away from the threat. That's the feeling this image is intended to produce in us. There's no getting out of this. The psalmist is spared from death, but the Messiah is rescued in an even greater way through death itself death doesn't have the final say though he dies god raises him again as the victor over sin these truths of god's ability to bring victory out of certain defeat would have encouraged and strengthened jesus as he enters the garden of gethsemane as he pours out his soul before god as he expresses his distress and anguish and he prepares to face his final hours can you see in this your need to know the word of God? To meditate on it regularly? See, we know that Jesus immersed himself in the word of God. He quoted the Psalms more than any other book of the Bible. And one pastor concludes if he had to strengthen himself with the word of God before he went into the darkness of Calvary, how much more do we need to strengthen ourselves with the word of God when we go forth into the dark providences Of our lives. And yet this comfort is offered. To us. At any moment. Jesus is drawing encouragement. From the truths of God's word. And we're reminded. That we will find more than enough help. And grace from God. When we do the same. This isn't just about memorizing some verses. And then quickly quoting them. This is about learning the character of God. It's rehearsing what he is like, what he offers. This psalm is an excellent example. Think of all the times God's name is mentioned and think about what this psalm tells us he does. Meditate on those truths and I promise your problems will look much smaller. As he grows bigger in your eyes, which the word does for us, our issues, our problems, our fears, our concerns, they dissipate. We're to cling to him through the word. It's to shape our thoughts and then our feelings and then our actions. So we're consistently working on understanding the word better. And this week we have the unique opportunity to focus and meditate on the person and work of Christ. Can I encourage you to take that time this week? There are all kinds of study guides and helps that you can find that will help you celebrate and thank God for his steadfast love for you. Take advantage of this time. Notice again how the truths of this psalm are on the mind of Jesus. On Tuesday of the Passion Week, Jesus taught that parable of the tenants. We talked about that as we worked through 1 Peter. That's quoted from Psalm 118, verse 22. That was quoted in his last week. Jesus is predicting his death at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. After giving this parable, Jesus looks directly at them and asks, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. That means eternally destroyed. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them. This truth stuck in Peter's mind. We've already seen him refer to it in 1 Peter. But hear how he applies Jesus' words from verse 22 to these same religious leaders later. After he and James are arrested and then released for preaching Christ. In Acts 4.11, Peter says, Know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And here's how Peter applies it. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And here now verse 23, which says this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The very people who should have been rejoicing over the presence of Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, rejoicing in Jesus, the cornerstone, have rejected him. But God would make him the chief cornerstone as he begins building the new temple of God through his people. This is the Lord's doing. See the stunning reversal what looks like defeat, God brings victory. Isn't it so much better to take refuge in a God like this than to trust in man? Picture again now Jesus at that last supper singing this psalm. He would have sung verse 27. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. This was words given to Aaron the priest as a benediction that God's presence was with them. What do you think Jesus thought of when he sang those words and knew what he was about to face? Jesus would face the greatest agony in the loss of God's presence with him in those final horrific hours. Consider what he must have thought as he sung, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Jesus knew he would be that sacrifice. He would not escape death on God's altar as Isaac had before him because Jesus was God's substitute sacrifice for our sakes. Hebrews 12, two then urges us, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand Of the throne of God. In light of Christ's substitution. His sacrifice for us on the cross. Look now again at verse 28. And see how it is fulfilled. In an even greater way through Jesus. The psalmist says. You are my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Think about how that personal relationship could only truly be made through Christ. And he concludes, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. One author applies these truths this way. Reason suggests that thanks ought to be in proportion to mercies received. Think of that. Thanks ought to be in proportion to mercies received. If this is so, how impossible it is for the saints ever to exceed the bounds of sobriety in lauding and magnifying the grace which saves them. So in conclusion, this text is teaching us to give thanks to Jehovah, to the Lord, for he faithfully rescues his people through Jesus. Love like this is self-denying and costly. This is the costliest true love ever given. For you to receive the loving kindness of the Lord, it cost the father his own son. But know this, the father gladly gave him and the son willingly accepted the terms because they loved you in spite of your unfaithfulness, in spite of your unworthiness. You and I have never been loved by anyone like that. And that is why this psalm finds its greatest fulfillment in Jesus. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good to you. His steadfast love endures forever. Peter would apply these truths this way, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light proclaim his excellencies church family you may feel distress around you in many different ways in your life right now but can you trust and rest in a god like this who loves you with a love that will not let you go He has the power to deliver you through all your hardships. And as we're seeing in 1 Peter, that doesn't mean he makes our lives easy. But he constantly provides us with the reminder that he loves us and he's with us always. If you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then you can say with the psalmist, he is my God. If you've not trusted Christ to forgive you of your sins, This offer of forgiveness and salvation is available to you this morning. You can be confident that his steadfast love towards you endures forever through Christ. This morning, in honor of our great king, we would join with this ancient crowd with a deeper understanding of what they proclaimed, of the truths of this psalm. And we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Gracious King Jesus, we exalt you this morning. For in the cross, in your suffering, we see your steadfast love put on display. Father, we are humbled by a love that will not let us go. Or this kind of love, this kind of grace to us that we know we don't deserve, it calls us to admit how we failed you. And yet we do that willingly when we see this so clearly. Because that is the very condition upon which we receive more of your grace. Lord, humble us before the cross, before our King. But remind us, assure us, give us confidence again that we are loved by him in a way that we cannot ever experience from any other person in this life. Help us to know and believe and experience that this love is more valuable to us than any of the other trinkets and trifles that we put our hopes in. Lord, help us to rejoice rightly with the psalmist as we declare our allegiance and our praise and our thanks for a God who has come to us, who has rescued us, who's delivered us through the costly sacrifice of Jesus our Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you, Pastor Jim. Could it be that when we get to heaven...